glad to be with you today. Um, great to celebrate and worship Jesus together today. So we are wrapping up kind of a short series um, about just healthy habits for starting a year. So today we're going to talk about worship. Last week we talked about prayer. So it's a real honor to bring uh, this topic before us today. I'm excited for next week. We'll begin our Mark series again. We'll pick up from chapter 9 and finish the Gospel of Mark this spring. And also next week, I hope to have uh, some study guides that were written from somebody within the Parkview family. Just going to be an excellent resource guide for you to study the Gospel of Mark on your own as well as as we preach it here on Sunday morning. So great to be with you. So let's say that we made it possible that we could take somebody from the first century and transport them to today and that this person would follow you around. And so let's say that this happened next September. And the first thing you did with this person from the first century is that you took them to Kinnick Stadium. You took them there on a Saturday afternoon and there was a game in session and everything was going on that goes around Iowa games on Saturday in the fall. And so imagine what this person, if this person was communicating back to his first century friends what they saw. He could be saying things like this, like, I saw the most amazing cathedral. Like, and these people were gathering for worship. They told me 70,000 people were there. And they were all there to worship the god Herkai. And this Herkai was this bird form. With, it was black and gold. And so outside of the cathedral, people were offering burned offerings of various things and drinking various things and worship to this god. And then all the gatherers and worshipers would go inside the cathedral and then begin to celebrate and cheer as, as gladiators came out wearing the same colors as Herkai and having little images of Herkai on their helmets. And then these gladiators would spend time on this field doing battle with smaller and slower gladiators from other places. And the crowd would cheer and celebrate. And it was an amazing experience of worship that these people have discovered. And so let's say the next Saturday you decided to take them, you know, to Ames. And the scripture might be a little different. It was like, well, I saw a smaller worship experience this week. The cathedral wasn't as big. The fans, the, I mean, the worshipers were not as exuberant, but still another form of, and so maybe that would be the description, you know. And so, but let's say that that person not only went to two football games with you, but let's say that person just followed you kind of throughout your week, just saw your rhythms of life and saw what you were excited about and saw what you did with your time. Like, what did you talk the most about? What got you really excited? Um, where did you spend money? What did you spend money on? What did you do with most of your time? And what kind of things would they write back to their first century audience about you, about the things that you prize, the things that are valuable to you, things that you, you worship? And so that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about worship, and it's going to transcend more than just what we do here for an hour because worship is much broader than that. In fact, the three questions we're going to ask and answer today are what is worship, why do we worship God, and then how, how do we worship God? And so to start this time, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to read Psalm 95 together. Now, the book of Psalms was really like a song book, a worship book that the people in the Old Testament used to sing, but particularly Psalms 95 to 100 were times where songs and psalms meant to bring God's people into worship together. So we'll read Psalm 95 together. So here we go. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Moriah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. Let me pray. We are calling this a worship service. We're here to worship you, but I pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would reveal to us what it is or who it is that we are truly worshiping. And, that, and I pray that you would show us why you alone are worthy of, of our worship. And then would you teach us as your people how you long to be worshiped. So big topic today. Uh, I need your help. So Lord, just speak to us, speak your truth into our hearts today. Make it clear what you're calling us to do. In your great name we pray, amen. Okay, you guys can grab a seat. So let's start with that question, what is worship? Well, worship is our response to what we value the most. Like what matters most to you and your response to that is really what worship is. And so it's an important topic because worship is really the driving force behind all that you do. It's the greatest indicator, really, what you're worshiping is the greatest indicator of where your life is headed and of whether or not when you get there, will you be satisfied or not. And it's really a big challenge for us to really, really seriously know what is it that our, that our hearts are craving? What is it that we are truly worshiping? So one night while he was exploring around his school, Harry Potter came across a mirror. It was called the Mirror of Erised. And the writing engraved on the frame of that mirror was, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. The word erised is, if you've noticed, desire spelled backwards. And the mirror had the ability not to just show your reflection, but to show what your heart truly longed for. And so when Harry stood in front of the mirror, he saw not a reflection of himself, but he saw a picture of him standing there with his mom and dad. And if you know the story, Harry lost his parents when he was very young. So what it was exposed from his heart was that deep longing to be together, to have a mom and dad in his life. And he was blown away by that experience. So the next night, he went and he brought a friend, Ronald Weasley, to, to look in there so that Ronald could see this mirror and, and see his parents. And so, but when Ronald Weasley stood in front of that, instead of seeing Harry's parents, he saw himself as a strapping athlete, a captain of the team holding up a championship cup. Because what he had experienced for years was he was in a family where brothers achieved and, and were successful in sports, and he was often overlooked. And so the desire of his heart was that he would be the champion, that he would be the one that everybody respected and admired for his physical prowess. So I wonder, what would our reflection, what would we see if every one of us were to go in front of such a mirror, if such a mirror was true, what would we see? Maybe we would see a picture of, if you're a parent, like your, your children, like and everybody looks great. And maybe down the road, your children, everybody is, 
is happy and married and they're all in great careers and everything's going perfect for them. That, you know, that might be a reflection of what you'd see or maybe, <laughs> maybe you'd see yourself and you look amazing. Like you are in shape and you are cut and you are, you know, and so, and people are around you just in awe of what you look like, you know, or maybe it's you in a really nice house or it's you uh, speaking somewhere and everybody is in awe of, of your words or everybody's in awe of what you have achieved. You guys, it is, it is incredibly hard to really determine what's going on in our hearts. And I, I think, you're, you know, most of you, you're in a church uh, on a Sunday morning. Most of us say, well, what would you see? And everybody, well, we'd see Jesus or we'd see God because that's who we worship. And I don't, may, you know, maybe, but I know in my own heart, that's a battle sometimes. Like, what would I see? I remember a couple years ago just walking in. It was just a normal day of the week, walking in. And it's one of those moments where it just hit me, like, Doug, why are you, why are you coming to work today? Like, why are you a pastor? And and I, I just stopped. Maybe if you saw me one morning, just stop out there. What was wrong with Doug? But like, just, it really was hitting me. Like the, the first motives coming up were not awesome motives. They were not noble. And so I, I do think, and I do agree that, that we have got to be really careful about what it is that is our greatest pursuit because whatever it is our hearts really crave, that's what we're truly going to worship. I've been reading a, a great book recently. It's called You Are what you love. It's by James K.A. Smith. He's a professor at Calvin College. And he says things like this, that Christian worship faces the disturbing reality head on, recognizing gaps between what we think we love and what we really love, and what still propels us toward rival gods and rival visions of the good life. The body of Christ is that unique community whose members own up to the fact that we don't always love what we say we do, and that the devices and desires of our hearts outstrip our best intentions. So we have to be aware of our unconscious decisions that we make by habit that support what we truly love and truly pursue. And it could be that we are loving and worshiping other gods and we're really not even aware of it. So then how do you, how do you determine? Like, what am I worshiping? What, what really is my heart craving. And so I think some of the places you could go or start looking would be uh, to look at your time. Like where, where am I spending a majority of my time? Or when I have free moments, where do my thoughts go? Like what do I just most naturally gravitate towards in what I'm thinking about? Um, where does our money go? What do we spend money on? Um, or if you could have a transcript, uh, a podcast of your voice, like throughout a day, what do you, what do you talk about? And even when you have down moments, what are the topics that you bring up? And, and even if you could listen to yourself, like what are the topics that really get you excited? Like you're really fired up when you're talking about uh, those things. Those could be definitely places you could start. You know, another place you could look would be to look at the things that you worry about or the things that you're afraid of. Because a lot of times those will make a trail from our heart to the things that we really value and things that we almost can't see living without. So if we're constantly worried, you know, about a job or constantly worried about our family, it could be that we have elevated those things to that place of being supreme in our lives. And so the thing about all these things is that they're not necessarily bad things to be healthy, to have a job, to have a family, to have your family be doing well. Those are all good things. The problem is none of them are really designed to be ultimate things. Your soul 
is really wired uh, for something much greater that you can truly trust in and depend upon. And so, um, and the problem is that if we pursue these small g gods, then what's going to happen is that our souls will be disappointed and we uh, will not find the life that we're looking for. There was a commencement speaker at Kenyon College. It's a school in Ohio, David Foster Wallace. And he said, he said this to the graduating seniors. He said, there is no such thing as atheism. We are all worshipers. Anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, they are where you tap real meaning in life and you will never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when age begins to show wear and tear on your body, you will die a million deaths before you die. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to keep that fear at bay. And if you worship intellect, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's almost like the things he was sharing there are a reflection of what God shared with us 2,500 years ago in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 115, uh, that psalm starts with this, not to us, but to your name be glory, O God, in heavens, because you are in the heavens and you do whatever you please. And then talking about those who worship other gods, the psalm says this, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but don't hear. Noses, but don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. And they have feet, but they don't walk. And those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust them. Again, those things can be good things in our lives that we've mentioned, but if they become the ultimate and supreme things, then they will, as the speaker said, just ruin our lives. The human soul has been designed to run on something far greater. That's why C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so that is why we worship God. That is why God needs to be our supreme focus in worship. In John 4, 23, Jesus said, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It's an amazing statement that the creator of the universe is looking for worshipers. He's looking for you and for me to worship him. The first two commandments of the 10 commandments are that you shall have no other gods before me and that you should not make yourself an idol and bow down to them and serve them. And then God says this, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Now you hear, you think about our jealousy, that our jealousy is really rooted in insecurity. Like if if someone's love that I think should be coming to me is going elsewhere and I'm jealous of that, or if somebody has some things and I'm jealous of those things, it means that I'm, that's coming from a place of insecurity in my life. But when God says he's a jealous God, God is not insecure. Like God's existence doesn't hinge on whether you worship him or not today. Like he's gonna be fine. Like he's been fine for eternity. He's gonna be fine for all of eternity future. So, but what does it mean that he's a jealous God? It means that's more of a reflection of his love for you that out of all the things you can pursue in this life, there is only one that can truly satisfy you. There is only one God who deserves the worship 
uh, of your soul, and that's him. So when he says, have no other gods before me, that's a command, and God's commands are meant to provide for you and protect you. And he's saying, don't chase other gods, but chase me. Form your heart to the place where it craves me, and that you long to worship me. The best and greatest gift that God can give us is that he can give us himself, and that's his longing from his heart. He's a jealous God. Uh, the church leader Augustine <clears throat> phrased it this way, that God, you have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. So now we come to Psalm 95 about why do we worship God. And we read this together. And it started with this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Okay, so again, this opened into a six-psalm series in this whole great songbook, 150 chapters in the book of Psalms, all praise songs to God. But these six particular ones were an invitation for God's people to come and worship him together. And some of the words there, this, this has more of a feel of shouting and exuberance and loud celebration in his presence. Guys, there are moments where that should be true in this room, that it is loud, that we're shouting out, that hands are raised, that we're just exuberant. Our souls are just crying out to this God that we worship. I know there's other times where God says, be still and know that I'm God. I know there's other prayers in the book of Psalms that probably had a more somber tone, but there are definitely times in these six Psalms in particular talk about times where we come into his praises making joyful shouts and noises unto him. And then verse three begins to describe, well, why? It's not just something you, you muster up and pretend, like this is legitimately flowing out of your hearts. Well, why is that? Verse three, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hand formed the dry land. We praise God because he's a great God. And so many times in the scripture where it talks about the greatness of God, it makes an immediate beeline to his creation. Here's exhibit A of how we know God is great. Look at his creation. And so this psalm points to mountains and seas. And I think of the verse that says that God holds the seas of the water in the palm of his hand. And so in that day, you look at what you can see with seas and and oceans and, and water and say, wow, our God is big. Guys, today, when we even know more about God's creation, how infinitely it seems small it is, as well as like infinitely large it is. You talk about our galaxies, for example. There are estimated 100 million galaxies, and every galaxy of which the Milky Way we're a part of, they estimate has 100 million stars, and every one of these stars uh, the one we know the best is the sun, right? And so the sun has a core temperature of 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. That'll take care of the ice on your driveway pretty quick, right? So there's that. And so like, how do we, how do we know God is great? Exhibit A is look what he's made. And in Psalm 8, where it talks about where David's just looking at this starry host and, and just saying, when I look at the stars and the moon, like I just am amazed at the glory of God. But David said, God made all that. The, the, he calls them the work of God's fingers, his fingers. 
It's not even like oh, his back and his legs. He really had to get his back and legs into that one. When he made creation, he had to get his arms, and they're big and strong, and his hands. You know, like out of all the body parts, he's like, oh, you just do that with his fingers. Like he just made all this creation. It just, it was just a little finger work, a little, maybe through his pinky in there a little bit. And then you see all of creation. It wasn't like all of creation strained God at all. Like it's an, it's an amazing expression of his power, but it's just the work of his fingers. We worship a great God. And so we praise him for his greatness, but we also praise him because of his goodness. Look at verse six. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You guys, the other reason we praise God is because of how good he is. It is so easy for us just to read through this, but just stop and think, like, who are we to say God is our God? Like, if we could look, somehow get a picture of how big everything God made really is, and then it'd be impossible because we, to show up on that picture, would be infinitesimally small. Like, we are just a speck of a speck of a speck of a speck out of all that God has made and what audacity for that speck to just look at the one who made all this and go, that's my God. Like, whatever. Like, how can you say that? You are so small for us to say he is our God. I, to be honest, shows absolutely nothing about us. A speck cannot claim ownership or possession of such a great creator. The only reason we can say he is our God is that he made the step toward us. He made uh, relationship with him, communication with him, possible. He had to make that step. The, the infinitely strong and holy and sovereign God is completely unattainable to any of us, but yet we can call him our God. That shows how good and merciful he is. And can I add a layer to that? If you're not already like, okay, I'm small, I get it. Let's even add to that. It's not just that you're incredibly small, what, what is incredibly offensive about us is that we're not just small, but we're also rebellious. Like how many times in our lives have we looked at this amazing great God and said, I don't need finger, just said bad things about him, ignored him, took credit for what he has done for ourselves, lived proudly as if like it's all about us and not about him. Good night, you guys. Like honestly, if I'm God, and there's this speck of a speck of a speck named Doug. I mean, it, it would take all I had to show him any kind of mercy. But as I'm showing him mercy, he's kicking back, he's ignoring, he's being a punk. I'm, you know, here's me. I'm done. Like, let's just stomp that guy and let me just move on. So it's not just that he's good and merciful that you're small, but he's also been amazingly, rich. the Bible says rich, he's rich in mercy. That he is steadfast in his love towards you, that he moved towards you while you're a sinner. So Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and we fall so short of the glory of God. But God, that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Like that's, that's the essence of the gospel, that God is not just great and vast and all that he's made and he's holy and perfect, but, but he has been absolutely rich and infinite in his love and mercy and grace toward us. And so we can call him our God. We can 
call him our, our shepherd. And we can admit that we are sheep of his pasture, that we don't deserve this, that we're stupid, that we need a leader, that we need a provider, we need a strong uh, God in our lives. And so all of that is made possible because of the gospel. And so where true worship flourishes is where we get both of those truths, the majesty of God's greatness and goodness and the utter, whatever you want to call it, smallness, depravity, unworthiness, brokenness on our end. When, when you see both of those things clearly and still see that God moves towards you, he's for you, he's with you, that's the place where worship erupts. And the churches and the Christians where worship is failing, it's because we've diminished one of those two truths. We've either brought God down from his scale of being the judge and holy and the one who calls the shots. If we bring him down to a level that we're more comfortable with, if we make God more in our thoughts that he should be like instead of letting him be God, then you're not gonna worship as passionately. Or if you elevate yourself far beyond where you belong, I'm not that bad. There's a lot of bad people out there. I'm sure not one of them. Like you just, if you just immediately neglect then your absolute need for the love, mercy, and grace. And the cross of Jesus means so little to you. And so then it would be so easy for you to show up on a Sunday and you're not really singing. You're not really excited about this stuff. You go throughout your week, you really don't, you don't talk about it that much. It's not that big a deal. You see the Hawkeyes, we finally won a Big Ten game. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But I mean, but honestly, seriously, like the place where worship flourishes is in that that place where, where God is who he is, great, awesome, merciful, gracious, and we are where we are, small, broken, sinful, but yet loved and pursued by an amazing God. That's where worship erupts. And so, and so then how, God, how, how do you want us to worship you? And so when you bring up this topic of worship, immediately most of our thoughts goes towards singing, okay? And that's not totally bad. Like if you look through the scripture, Singing to God is a pretty common, it's a common theme that you see throughout the Psalms and in other places. It's a huge deal. Music is a powerful gift that God has given his people. It's through music that we celebrate. It's through music that we share our, our, you know, our hard times. We communicate so many things through song. That's why when you look through the Bible, about a third of the Bible is written in song. The longest, biggest book of the Bible is a song book. It's a worship book. So music and, and songs to God are, are very key. It's a key response in how we worship. And so like when God's people crossed the Red Sea, the first thing they did when they got to the other side, was they sang a song. Like they praised God. Or as the, David's kingdom was reaching its, its, its peak, you know, one thing he did was commission priests and Levites to lead God's people in singing. And if you know David's story, he wrote many of the Psalms. He was a man after God's own heart, and he loved bringing God's people into God's presence through, through songs. You know, even Jesus, the night he was crucified, right before he was arrested, he sang a song with his disciples. So, so many injunctions in the scripture, sing to the Lord a new song. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Our singing expresses such a wide range of what's really going on in our hearts. And so let me just stop and talk a little bit about songs we sing. Like I, I love the songs that we sing. There's such a good blend here of 
the, the hymns, I consider them to be like the fight songs of the faith. Like these are, are just so many great, rich truths set to music um, that we can cling to and remember and pass on from generation to generation. Those songs are awesome. I also love the praise songs that each generation, as they see God and experience God, write about his greatness and his goodness to us. And so in the 70s, there were great songs, and in the 80s and 90s and 2000s and this decade, groups like Jesus Culture, Hillsong Young and Free, I mean, I just love the way that over time, different generations have worshiped and praised God. And I was just thinking through this week of, of just songs that have hit me at key times in my life. I remember about a decade ago when there was a suicide in our family and driving to go pick up our younger kids at that time to bring them where the rest of the family was gathering and just driving on that road trip. And the song that was big then was, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. You know, in that phrase, he gives and he takes away. He gives and he takes away. But my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Man, that just nailed us at a key time in our lives. I remember a time, one, thing, one, one way I love to worship God is just getting out in his creation. And so one of the closest places you do that around here is Woodpecker Trail or Squire, Squire Point. I was out there or a place like that sometime, and, and just, I can sing out loud there too, and the only people that hear me and laugh are squirrels, so it doesn't matter, right? And so, but I was singing um, How Great Thou Art, that verse where it's like, and when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take my sin away. Like it just, it just leveled me. I had to just stop and there were just tears of, God, why did you do that for me? God, I, I love you so much. I remember um, a time where, probably one of the hardest times in my life, I was in a, a strange church for the first time, uh, just sitting in the back and intentionally in the back. And um, a David Crowder song they were singing. And I, God loved the people. It wasn't the greatest rendition of David Crowder. And, and I don't always understand David Crowder lyrics to begin with. But there was a song I was familiar with, but there was a line from it that just nailed me. It's that song, How He Loves Us, that he is jealous for me. Love like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the wind, uh, under the weight of his wind and mercy. And at that time, even just that line was just God putting an arm around me, saying, I love you, like I am with you in uh, such a powerful moment. I remember one time just sitting in here with you guys, that song we sing a lot, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son. And these two words jumped out, to make a wretch his treasure. Like for some, I mean, we sung that how many times? And you see the words on the screen, how many times? But in that moment where God just, just, just highlighted those words, wretch and treasure, and that just nailed me, like, absolutely, that's me, and I don't understand the treasure part, but that's what you say, and that's who I am through Christ. Uh, God, God does powerful things in his people's lives when we sing, because uh, songs hit us in the heart, and the beautiful thing about the hymns and the songs we sing is that they take such truths and they put them in, they give you memorable hooks that you remember, like when you were a little kid, right, and you learned the ABCs, how do they teach you that? A, B, C, D, if you're still struggling, I can teach you the song, and like you'll nail it, you'll do better, you know, so, but God knows that, that songs are a good way to take truths and just hook them into our minds and into our hearts, and so Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says this, be filled 
with the Spirit, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So now I'm going to take some of you to a place you're going to be a little uncomfortable with. It's awesome uh, that you love songs and there's songs that mean things to you and remind you about God. That's awesome. You got to deal with this, <laughs> the next part about God said, well, why don't you sing? And I've heard people say, oh, I can't sing. I'm not that good a singer. And you take them to Kinnick, and they're singing out the fight, 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 forward, oh, I want. Like, dang it, you can sing. It's just like you're just, maybe your heart's not getting lit up like it could. So you got to be honest there. Like, if you're not singing God stuff, like, let's, let's dig a little bit there. Like, do you really understand what he's done for you and how awesome he is? So that's a place of awkwardness. Well, I'll see if I can sing. Okay, but let me, let me push you out even more. Okay, you are commanded to sing in public. Oh, my I just said it. Like, those of you that maybe ditched choir all your life, you have a horrible voice. I got to tell you, God gave you that voice, okay? And so, so you could blame him, but also, like, he, in spite of the fact that he gave you that voice, he wants to hear that voice. And he's commanding us in Ephesians 5 and in other places that when we gather as God's people, we need to hear your voice. Wait a minute, the last person you'd want up here in a microphone is me. Okay, I get that. We might not put you up here, all right? But we need you out there singing. Can I give a case in point? I was going to keep his name anonymous, but you met him. I didn't know Mike was going to be up here. When we sing as a staff team, Mike, is, Mike has probably one of the worst voices on our team next to mine. You will not see Mike up here leading some worship, but I can tell you something. The way that man uh, communicates a passion and a love for God as he sings fires me up, okay? There's another guy, Mike Benish. He runs, <laughs> he runs cameras here. And um, one of my daughters was watching live stream on an icy morning or something like that. I was like, Dad, would you tell that cameraman to stop singing so loud? He's off key or something like that. And so, but if you've ever sung with Mike, it might not be, not, that comes from a heart that knows the gospel and knows what God has saved him from. You have no idea who's sitting next to you Sunday after Sunday and you singing out the truths about who God is and what he has done. You have no idea of the encouragement that can bring to the person sitting next to you who might be going through one of the hardest weeks of their life, who might be in the throes of a marriage that's falling apart, who might be doing with, dealing with a kid who is just walking away from God, who is maybe someone who's just lost a job. You might have somebody sitting in front of you that is so ashamed about a sin that just keeps coming up in their life again and again and again, and to hear your voice throw in with Jacob and John and whoever else is up here, just to hear you affirming that God is good, that God is forgiving, that God loves us, you have no idea of the power of you praising God and what that's gonna do for the person sitting around you. I need to tell you more, that as your pastor, one of the best things you do for me is when I'm up here and I hear your voices singing, or when I'm walking through, because I've been talking to people in the foyer from last hour and I'm trying to get in here, when I walk up and I just hear you all singing out, it's not, the, it's not the tone that I'm looking for. It's not like I'm not a skilled choir leader. Oh, these guys are good. It's like what's coming from your heart that just so fires me up. So we're commanded to sing to the Lord. We're to sing to each other. Um, we're here to fire each other up. And so, and so, God, how do you want us to worship you? Singing is prominent in the scripture, okay? So, and again, if there's not a song about God in your heart, I mean, just as your pastor, just gently ask why. Like, what don't you understand about who God is and what he's done for you, okay? 
So the other thing you notice we do on Sunday mornings is that we preach the word. We proclaim God's word. And so you'll see basically there's a one-two punch when we gather. There's singing and there's proclaiming truth. Singing and there's proclaiming truth. In fact, there's something distinct about Christian gatherings. Wherever you go around the world, you'll see that one-two punch, that they're singing and they're, and they're preaching. They're proclaiming truth from God's word. I love how John Piper, who's a retired pastor from Minneapolis, asked that question, well, why is it that Christians preach and sing and preach and sing? And he says, no other religion does that when they gather because Christianity is news. It's staggeringly good news for weak and helpless and undeserving sinners. No other religion is created and sustained by news. All the religion is summed up by this, do your best for God and maybe God will look on you with favor. That is not good news. We proclaim the gospel and we sing about a God who is infinite in his greatness and in his goodness. That's why we do that here. We proclaim a message about God's greatness and goodness. We, my prayer is we proclaim every week the gospel that every one of us can have access to the unattainable God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's hope for sinners like me and like you. My, my prayer is that every week you hear that message proclaimed and that every week in here we sing about the greatness and the goodness of that God. And so, but then worship must transcend. Worship is far greater than what just happens here when we gather one hour a week. In fact, we saw in Psalm 95, even in that psalm of an invitation to corporate worship, there's more to it than just singing and proclaiming. So you look at verse six again, the, the, the plea was, oh, come, let us worship and let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. So what God is saying, there needs to be a response, not just proclaim the word, not just sing a few songs, but that when we leave, we leave with a posture of, of bowing down, that our hearts are now humbled and surrendered before God, that we're gonna obey God. And he gives an amazing example. Don't let your hearts grow hard like it did for God's people at Meribah. And you might go, what happened at Meribah? Well, Meribah was right after God rescued his people from Egypt when the <laughs> Red Sea opened up and they walked across on dry land and then it caved in on Pharaoh and his armies and all that. When they got to the other side, they sang songs and they worshiped God. But a couple days later, they had no water. And so immediately, and just turning on a dime, they start complaining and grumbling and whining to God. After all that God had just done uh, and celebrating him with song just a day or two later, their hearts are hard. And so the plea there is, is to continue to worship God throughout your week, uh, bowing your hearts before him, obeying him, following him. And so when we see other things start popping up in our lives, we start seeing complaining or worry or selfishness or being critical of other people. Now those are dashboard lights flashing, saying we are not in a posture of worship. Like we are forgetting the greatness and the goodness of God. So, so our worship is meant to propel us into a week of obedience and following God. Our worship here is also meant to propel us into a week of serving others. Look at Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, and the him there is Jesus, so through Jesus, let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise 
to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So another natural outflow of people who worship God is that you will be humble, you will obey him, but you will also serve him and others throughout the week because you'll be in a posture now of realizing that God is great, that God is a provider, that God has been good for you. And so what that propels you to do is throughout the week not to live in fear and not to live hoarding things for yourself and not to live for yourself, but you're totally freed up then to live for the people you work with, to live for the people in your neighborhood, to live for uh, your family and to lay down your lives for them. And this is a beautiful picture of why you want to get the, the gods in your life in the right order because when the God, big G God, is God in your life, and he's the one you are trusting in, resting in, and your heart there, then when you step into the other arenas of your life, when you step into work, you're not there driven by fear and the desire to achieve, because you've already, already achieved all you can. You are accepted by the creator of the universe. And so with achievement and proving yourself no longer a deal, you're set free from that, the competition and the cutthroat environment that you might be a part of. And you can rise above that and you can live to serve others. Or instead of smothering your family with making them, you know, if you're a parent, you know, well, there's seasons where your kids respect and just love dad. <laughs> there's times where like, dad who? You know, and so if your, whole, if your whole security is based on how your family's giving you feedback, you're in big trouble. And the things you'll do to try to get them to listen to you and respect you, that gets creepy and ugly in a hurry. So, but if instead God is the one you worship and he is the one that you're secure in his love, then you're freed in your family to weather those storms of when the kids listen, when they don't, when they respect, when they don't, because you're not leaning on them, you're leaning on God. And so you are free uh, to serve and to make sacrifices with your life, to do good and to share in ways that are pleasing to God. And so um, I had a quick point. We don't need to belabor this, but there's also an aspect there of worshiping privately and worshiping corporately. That, that worship is something that we do throughout the week, not just when we gather. We've already talked about what happens here. This is awesome. And, and I would encourage you to not miss. In fact, there's a verse in the Bible that says, uh, don't forsake our own assembling together. Like, guys, meeting together is so key. You'd have no idea what God may want to say to you in this place because you've given them an hour, because you've, you're surrounded by the praises of other people and you are hearing the word of God preached. Like how many moments in your life God speaks to you uh, in these moments. So to make this a priority is, is certainly key and you see it throughout the scripture. But for you to also have rhythms of worship throughout your week are so crucial as well, that you are making sure that in your week there's places where you are reading God's word and being reminded of his greatness and goodness and places where you're praying or I hope you've got playlists where you're listening to hymns or to praise songs and where even maybe you are singing in your car or wherever that is, but that you're doing that privately. You can consider that as worship practice, right? So when you come and gather with everybody, you're ready, man. You're ready to contribute and chip in. That, that is really awesome. Or to make sure there's also places in your life where you're around other believers who are asking you questions about your heart, where they are, are speaking into your heart, where you're not trusting God's greatness and goodness. So worship is definitely a rhythm that we, we do both corporately and privately. And so next week, um, you guys are in the in 930 service, so 
the, the next six months, we, we're doing something just, a, I would say, a slight adjustment to how we worship. The times are going to be the same. And at 8 o'clock, we, we may see, I think we're going to see some things move a little more acoustically, a little, little um, I never have a good words for describing this, but um, a lot of our songs we'll sing in the two services will be similar. Just how we are, how we are playing them or the music behind them could be slightly differently different and what we'll see in these later two might be uh, a little a little louder in some ways a little more a little i hate using the words um but but and you're going to see subtle subtle adjustments in these things in the next couple of weeks i'm really excited for things we're going to learn as we do this as we hear from people as uh, and as you give comments in worship a lot of times one thing we have to guard against is is a consumeristic attitude you know like oh, i want this or i want this song and and to really think globally of the whole church and to, uh, I still long for the day where I hear others deferring to the other. You know, could we sing more hymns? Could we sing more, you know, in deference to others? And so in general, we do see good, good responses in that way. So we're not trying to be consumeristic, but we are trying to serve the body well. And so um, we may also have times on Sundays where we'll have different communicators. And so at eight o'clock, there may be uh, you know, some communicators. And then at 9.30 and 11, there may be some others. As a lead pastor here, we have several, I think, gifted communicators. And so I'm looking for different ways to, to have different ones of these bring God's word to us. And so, you, you, again, you'll be seeing those things. But my prayer is as we, as we pray and seek and try to shepherd well, that, that, that the focus of our worship is still gonna be the risen Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us and that we don't allow uh, other things to distract us from that worship when we gather together because God is looking for worshipers and you are a worshiper. The question is, who or what are you truly worshiping? So let me close this time in prayer and let me ask you to go first and uh, let me ask you to just praise God for his greatness and his goodness. How have you seen his greatness, and then how have you seen his goodness in your life? Just praise him. God, may we be a people who praise your name because you are great and you're good, and may, as we praise you, may that free us to, to serve you, to serve the city, to serve the people we we love, serve our families, and may we be known for people who love you, praise you, worship you, and serve you.